energy, electric, natural gas, hydrogen, nuclear, whatever form it may take, you probably don't realize how much you rely on it until it is not there. Ken Eichmann has spent years grappling with issues tied to energy generation, security, and use. A retired Air Force general, Ken is a senior research fellow and deputy director at the Center for Energy Security at the University of Texas. Among his many other accomplishments, he has chaired committees on energy efficiency and reducing U.S. dependence on foreign fuel for the National Academy of Sciences and the National Research Council. This show, Ken talks with Kevin about building for the future. Sometimes in life, you just find yourself blessed to meet people along the way who are just amazing people with incredible backgrounds. And today I have Ken Eichmann joining me, General Ken Eichmann joining me, who's one of those people that we've just had the chance to get to know each other through a community event here locally, and then stay in touch over the years. And the vast array of knowledge that is contained within General Eichmann's head is is absolutely amazing. And today I wanted to bring him on just to share some of that with us. Yeah, I think if anyone meets the definition of an uncorrelated mind, it is certainly General Eichmann. So Ken, thank you so much for joining. My pleasure. So Ken, the we'll start here. How does a boy from the Texas Hill Country go from there to three-star general at age 50? <laughs> that's that's an interesting question. I I didn't do anything different from what uh, most people have the capability of doing or, or doing. I had great examples in my life. My dad, probably paramount in those. He uh, was in the fifth grade uh, when he was taken out of school by his parents during the depression to go to work and uh, try and help uh, feed the family. He was able to get his six younger brothers and sisters through high school, but he never had a chance to go back. I don't know that I've ever met a smarter man who worked harder and cared more about other people than, than my dad and set a great example for me. Later, later in the Air Force, came up with core values and had all the generals uh, talk about what those values meant to them. And they were integrity first, service before self, and excellence in all you do. And I actually thought back to my dad. I, I think those he lived by those values, whether he knew it or articulated them or not. He certainly lived by those values. So I used, when I used to talk to my staff about what those values meant to me, I often mentioned my dad. And I can honestly say, I know it's sort of a cliche, but I've gone through life thinking about key decisions and thinking about what would my dad do or what, what if I do X or Y, what would make my dad proudest? What, what would be something that would mean something to him? I think that was always a, a great way to approach things. Uh, it gave me the opportunity to do a lot of things. And I've had great experiences through my life with other people I've been stationed with and had the pleasure of working with and to spend over 30 years on active duty with some of the best men and women the world has to offer in the United States military was, was an honor for me. Oh, great. Well, there's, I know there's a much more of a story behind that at the end of the day, just hearing your story and times that we've talked about how you made your way into the Air Force, you know, the University of Texas and a number of other, you know, tangential stories to that. There's a lot of preparation, I think, that goes into everything that you do in life. And it's very reflective. And even here today, as you've joined us, you're, you're very prepared for what you do. It's a very military type approach to things. And we preach that here at Air Capital is that it's not, a, and people 
call me and say, hey, the market did this today. How did you react? And I said, we didn't react. We prepared ahead of time. And so really, I I would say from, from you, what I've taken from you in my career is, is that preparedness, just always making sure that we have our clients prepared for what's going to head their way or what we don't know is going to head their way. Uh, you know, with that said, I know reading through your bio, we I, I don't think we have time. If we just read your bio, I think it would take up our entire podcast today. So I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to pick bits and pieces of it. But one thing that really stuck out before we jump into some of the most fascinating stories that you've shared with me, which are in relation to the nation's power grid and the security of the nation's power grid. July, July 11th, 1995 in Oklahoma is declared General Ken Eichmann Day. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Uh, uh, April 19th was the, uh, was the bombing of the Alfred P. Muir Federal Building in Oklahoma City. Uh, at the time, I was the commanding general at the Oklahoma City Air Logistics Center and installation commander of Tinker Air Force Base, uh, the closest military installation to the bomb site. I actually lost some people in the bombing who happened to be in the building at the time downtown. We responded from the base uh, immediately with uh, medical personnel, uh, security police, civil engineers, whatever was needed downtown. In fact, I sent all my doctors and nurses from my hospital downtown immediately, and then the Air Force backfilled my doctors and nurses with doctors and nurses out of Wilford Hall Medical Center in San Antonio and other Air Force hospitals around the world to make sure that uh, we cared for our patients. We kept, obviously, enough of them, enough doctors and nurses back to make sure we could do care for them while the others were en route. Uh, but it was uh, a very demanding time. I had an average of 800 people downtown at any one point in time, and I was commanding an overhaul depot where we overhauled aircraft and jet engines. And I was proud of not only what we were able to do downtown, but the fact that we never missed a delivery schedule or an aircraft or an engine during the entire time. There were other factors that, that made it even more challenging in that uh, shortly after the bombing downtown, I got a call in my office saying, General, tell the people on base to prepare to die. You're next. And the FBI found two bombs on our base that, wow. did, not go, that did not go off. That's not public knowledge. It's not classified per se. It may have been at the time. I declared uh, ThreatCon Charlie, attack is imminent. There's normal, then there's Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, and Delta. Delta, you're under attack. And that became the first U.S. military installation to operate under ThreatCon Charlie for real, other than during an exercise uh, in the continental United States until 9-11 and, and the Pentagon attack. So it uh, meant that everything coming onto the installation had to be inspected before it could come in. I had uh, 20,000 employees at the base and they all, every vehicle had to be inspected before it come onto the base. So we had to bring in other plane loads of bomb dogs to inspect vehicles. And not many people know it, but bomb dog will only search so many cars, 10, 20, whatever the number is, and they get tired and they quit. Hmm. And you can, you can order them <laughs> to go back to work. Yeah. They're not going to do it. <laughs> so we had to learn some things and we wrote, we wrote some after action reports that said how, how we could handle this differently, like have everybody drive to a shopping mall or something uh, and, and park and pick them up with buses and not bring all these vehicles onto the installation. There's all kinds of ways you could do this differently that were better. Hopefully, the military is operating better today as a result of those after action reports. But things went uh, well in terms of how we responded to a terrible uh, disaster. The federal building downtown was blown up along with the mirror building. It's just a block away from the mirror building. And so they uh, blew the 
uh, bulletproof glass out of the windows of the federal building. So the governor called and said, can we use your courthouse? I had the grand jury for McVeigh and Nichols. I had McVeigh and Nichols on my base. We had the grand jury there. So we had a, a number of things going on at once in addition to the response efforts downtown. But the Air Force provided uh, tremendous aid and support. And I spent a lot of time down there personally. And uh, the governor was so pleased. He called me one day later, several months later, things had settled down and asked me to come to his office. And I said, can you tell me what's about? He said, D just get down here. I said, yes, sir. So <laughs> I went down to the governor's office. He took me to his conference room and said, I want to declare General Ken Eichmann Day. And I, I accepted on behalf of the men and women of Tinker Air Force Base and the United States Air Force, but it was a great honor. I've, I've teased Governor Abbott about, I don't have my day in Texas. I do. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a great honor. So that's, that's how that happened. Wow. I had seen that in your bio in the past and, and known about your involvement in, in Oklahoma City bombings. And I know we may actually have some folks listening to this podcast that weren't around when that happened, some younger guys. But, you know, really at, at the time in this country, nothing like that had ever really happened. It was a, it was a first really domestic terrorist strike that I That's remember in, in my life uh, in over 40 years. And so it, how you responded to that was just really exceptional. So thank you. Uh, and thanks for sharing that story with us. And we'll remind, we'll remind Greg to get you a Ken Eichmann day here. In, in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I had just uh, come from, from the West coast or and actually uh, I was in Hawaii as the deputy chief of staff logistics for the Pacific air forces in a prior assignment. And that's when Mount Pinatubo blew up in the Philippines. Mm. And so I was charged with evacuating the Philippines, evacuate 18,300 people with three hour notice then had to go back and get all of their household goods and, and vehicles and things and uh, all the military equipment out of the installation. Uh, those were difficult times, but but I learned a lot, which helped me in Oklahoma City because I'd just been through a, a disaster before. I, we lost some people in Clark Air Base, Philippines as well. So it's not something you want to get used to, but it's something where experience helps. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit because I think what most people don't know about you is that your your level of experience and the amount of time you have spent with government committees in Washington testifying to and, and bringing important information to you know Congress about the safety of our nation's power grid. For those here in Texas, for the first time in our lives, we really felt what it was like to have a weak power grid during, uh, you know, what we call Snowvid. If you could just give us some background on what, how you ended up there, and then tell us what about what, what's going on now, and a little bit about where where do we stand with the kind of security of our power grid. I look at the world and I see Teslas here in Austin now. Everything's moving to electric vehicles. Do we actually have the right infrastructure? So infrastructure in place to support this growing demand on on the grid so a lot of questions there but i'll let you take it all right let me let me talk a little bit i think we don't have the infrastructure yet hopefully we will at the right you know in, in time but it's hard to uh, understate the dependence of the united states on electric power we depend on it for everything from digital communications to financial transactions function of basic utilities, including water and sewer, to transportation, to everything from traffic lights, air traffic control, and, and emergency vehicles, and, and then the military. I mean, we rely tremendously on electric power. I chaired a study recently on installation energy security for the Department of Defense, and uh, we found that 90% of the military bases in the United States uh, have a 
single source of power and it's from from the grid from off base wow we don't generate much of our own power there is backup power in fact there are government regulations that require uh, military installation to have backup power for this critical infrastructure however it doesn't define what's critical wow they leave that up to each installation commander so each installation commander decides what's critical for his own installation when I was an installation commander, I thought that was the right thing to do. I certainly thought I knew my base better than somebody in Washington might in terms of what was critical for me to do my mission. But there are certainly different interpretations of that. And so we found one base, as I was doing this chair in the study, that uh, had backup power for its gymnasium. And I asked the commander, how can you justify that as critical? He said, look, look to do my mission, my people must be physically fit. I need my gym. I said, well, that's a pretty lax definition of what's critical. I, I understand the criticality of people being in shape, but you can do push-ups without lights in the gym and other things. You can run. I mean, you can do other things. Another base that did not have backup power for its hospital because there, was a, there were civilian hospitals just off base. They could transfer patients to if in an emergency that had to be done. It's not ideal, but you can't have two bases one that has backup power for the gymnasium and one that doesn't have it for the hospital and say, we've got a consistent coordinated plan across the department of defense. We don't, or we didn't at the time. Yeah. Uh, I have pointed all these out and I've out briefed the Pentagon on that study and, and they're making changes and corrections. Uh, I'm not sure what all they've done, but I know that uh, they're aware of those types of issues. And it isn't that it was wrong to say we need to decide what's critical and have the person that's most knowledgeable do that. But you've got to provide some guidelines in which to do that. So there are those kinds of issues. That discussion brings up something as an example. We talk about when hurricanes hit Houston or hit the Gulf Coast or the East Coast, evacuation routes like I-10 out of Houston, all lanes are turned to out going out. The lanes entering town are all, everybody's coming out of town. The problem is not everybody, or one of the problems, not everybody has a full tank of gas in anticipation of the hurricane hitting. And so they get in their vehicle, they're not planning to, to evacuate. Then there's this evacuation order and the gas stations close down the street. So, so they head out and they run out of gas on the highway and they start blocking up traffic. So the Texas National Guard is going up and down the side of the highways with Humvees with five gallon cans of gas trying to give people some gas to help them get out. And so... Some people have said, well, why don't we put uh, backup power at every gas station in Houston? Well, you know, you don't need them at every gas station in Houston. You need some gas stations. So the city, the, the state of Maryland, for example, just passed uh, a legislative initiative to put backup power at the gas stations along emergency evacuation routes. And you don't have to put them at every gas station. You can take every 10th gas station, put backup power and put a microgrid to those 10 gas stations that have the one that has backup power, power the other nine. And, and so you need backup power at one tenth of the, of the stations on the evacuation route. So maybe you're doing 1% of the stations in, in, that, in the state or in, the, in the, the major cities. Uh, so there's ways to do this without just treating everybody the same and give backup power to every station. It's not bad. It's just, you don't have the money to do all that. So how do you, how do you make decisions? So that's part of the decision process I'm talking about, about let's, let's look at things. So I don't think everybody understands the electric grid as it operates. I mean, there are, there are three major sections to the electrical grid in the United States. This east of the Mississippi is an interconnected grid. 
west of the Mississippi is another interconnected grid, and then basically the state of Texas. It doesn't exactly follow the state border, but it's close. This is the third grid. So that's why the other sections of the country couldn't help Texas when we had the, the major power outage. But but the fact is that they have rippling failures in those other sectors that don't come into Texas either. So there's pros and cons of this. In fact, uh, not that many years ago, I'm talking, I don't know, four or five years ago, as an example that comes to mind, there was a um, power surge uh, in Phoenix that was transferred to two different lines to separate it to try and uh, deal with the surge. But it was still so great that it took two stations, two substations offline. Now, these substations, rather than have a failure uh, of the equipment and then you can't bring it back online, you have to replace it. They have shut down mechanisms so that if they see a power surge coming, they'll shut themselves down uh, to, to save the equipment. Well, they shut themselves down on both of these new lines. And then that cascade to the next day and they shut themselves down. And then the next one, and we had this cascading effect across the West and 11 minutes later, San Diego went dark from Phoenix. So, you know, you, you have these cascading failures. We've got to understand what's going on and how we deal with these types of issues and make sure we have a coordinated national approach. I'm talking about a, a whole of government approach by that. I mean, local state and federal, uh, most parts of the electrical grid, are, are uh, well, the electrical grid is monitored and, and uh, controlled by the federal government, but it's owned by private companies and they can make decisions what to do with their equipment. And if they're not compatible, consistent with other utilities in other states, they may not connect well and you, you can exacerbate the problem rather than helping the problem. So we need to have a, one consistent approach. The, the other thing is we've had a habit because we didn't know what else to do. We're trying to get power back when you have a major storm that takes out a major section of the grid. And I'm talking more about hurricanes now, like Katrina and, and Superstorm Sandy and Harvey and those take out a major part of the grid. We spend uh, an awful lot of money and a lot of time putting it back the way it was. Yeah, we ought to put it back the way it ought to be, not the way it was. I mean, but hard to get agreement from all these different owners in terms of how it ought to be. Somebody said, well, no, it ought to be this way. So no, 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 that's not right. We ought to do this. Well, it's time to sit down and get together and decide what the grid of the future ought to look like and base it on, on knowledge and data. And then we all move towards the same direction. We're not doing that today. And that's, that's a problem. So Austin probably has the premier approach to doing this in that when, when Bergstrom Air Force Base was closed and the airport in Austin was moved from Mueller Field out to Bergstrom, a good move because uh, B-52s were operating out of Bergstrom, have long runways, plenty of runway. Deep runways. Yeah, it was a SAC base, right? Right. Yeah. So it's, it's away from the community. It's not subdivisions built up next to the runways. That wasn't the case with Mueller. They had short runways and there was uh, uh, buildings on both ends of the runway. Now, most automobile accidents happen within five miles of home. Most uh, aircraft accidents happen on takeoff or landing. Not all of them, but most of them. And in Mueller Field, if you had an accident on takeoff or landing, unfortunately, you're going to take out some residences or apartment complexes or businesses along the way. And that just makes a bad situation all that much worse. So the city of Austin did something very smart. When they moved to Bergstrom as the airport, they didn't just take and close Mueller Field and let it become an industrial park or, or something else. They actually put some major thought into it and created what was called the Pecan Street Project, where they built the uh, 
energy efficient community of the future. And by so doing, they built a community where it has many of the homes, most of them, in fact, have solar panels on the roofs. So many of the people, they're smart homes. Uh, most, many of the people drive, and I think maybe most drive electric vehicles. So you can then look at this section of the grid and, it, and it's separated off. So it's a microgrid of this community. There's 700 plus homes and some businesses in there that we can monitor. And part of the agreement was if you live in this area, we're going to try and put things in to help subsidize the cost somewhat, but you agree to let us get the data in terms of your energy uses. And by doing that, we have a database in terms of what happens when everybody gets home from work and plugs in their electric vehicle at the same time, what does that do to the power grid? When a cloud comes over and all the solar panels stop producing, what does that do? How do we best store energy? How do we best utilize the energy? And so this now is, uh, is uh, one of the largest, most efficient microgrids in the world. We're learning a great deal of data from it. There are literally billions of data points. In fact, the University of Texas used the data from, from this project to put the university itself on its own microgrid. And so that if the state, go, when the state went down, if it goes down again, the University of Texas does not go down. It has its, it's separated or separable from the electric grid in the state. And they were able to, they were able to generate their own power. They have gas generators that can generate their own power. And if they generate more than they need, they can, they can provide power off, uh, off the campus to the, rest of the, to the rest of the city. So there are a lot of things that can and should be done. And I actually think that uh, we need to put a lot more thought into more smaller microgrids so that we don't have these cascading failures and we can, uh, everything's working fine. They're all up and running, but if we have a failure, we can stop it and not let it yeah. cascade across the country. Yeah. I'll never forget. We were having lunch one day and after our first interaction, I thought to myself, oh man, I better go read up on this stuff if I'm going to ever have lunch with General Eichmann again because uh, I need to <laughs> at least pretend to know what, I know what I'm talking about. But I actually had read about this before. And I, I mean, your eyes lit up when I, when I brought up the term SMR, small modular reactors. And yes. I had viewed this even before meeting you as a, if not the solution. I, I've always been a large proponent of nuclear power in terms of clean energy. That's an extremely clean form of energy. These small modular reactors you know, what I read about it was one of these reactors can actually power a large, very large area, and you have the ability to create grids of them and bringing a new one online once you have the initial ones online seem to be somewhat easier. And I may be missing the whole point here, but, you know, you lit up and, and I, I remember I had after the hurricane in Puerto Rico and all the energy infrastructure there was absolutely decimated. I remember reaching out to you and saying, hey, why don't they just do the SMR and rebuild the grid? you know, supposed to restore it, revamp it there and use that as kind of the test project. I know uh, if I could see your eyes roll back in your head, I'm sure I would have seen them roll back in your head because it had to do with, you know, dollars only allowing things to be built back the way they were versus being revamped or, or re-energized to, to the newer infrastructure. So, hey, hey, give me your thoughts on, you know, kind of what is the, the future of energy production and in, in your thought process from powering this increasingly energy drawing economy? Is it SMRs? Is it, you know, hydrogen vehicles? Is it geothermal as Bob Metcalf likes to talk about as well? You know, I think it's a combination of all. The SMRs certainly have a place. I mean, they've powered Navy nuclear vessels for 70 years. There's no reason why we can't have a 
small modular reactor. In fact, instead of building a 1400 megawatt uh, large power plant, I think we'd be better off building seven 200 megawatt SMRs and networking them together to uh, provide the same amount of power but these are small enough that they could be buried and you can have underground lines. I, I think it could be the power grid of the future. Department of Energy is doing a lot of work right now to uh, work with Idaho, Idaho National Labs to, to build and test a small modular reactor. But I think it's something that needs to be uh, prioritized and funded properly to uh, bring forward as soon as we can. There's zero emissions out of these plants. I know people here in nuclear and they're concerned about Fukushima and major power plants, but there were things that were done there that were not done the right way. Even Fukushima, the U.S. warned them about putting their, uh, their generators the wall, right? Oh. right below ground so that water they gets in them. I mean, we don't have that problem with the South Texas project, although it went offline for a while during the Texas outage here recently because of a water pressure sensor that failed, and we wound up shutting the plant down for a period of time. So there were a lot of things that happened in Texas, uh, none of which, by the way, couldn't have been corrected with current technology and knowledge. It's just that this is such a low likelihood of occurrence that are you going to spend the money to, to fix all of this so that if it happens, we can live through it. The likelihood of something happening like happened in Texas, we, we can fix, but it's, it's expensive. And the utilities, the way we're, we're regulated in Texas is incentivized to provide the, the power that's required by customers at the lowest possible price. Well, you're going to have to raise the, raise the price of electricity. And they're trying to balance and make this decision. This isn't going to likelihood maybe never happen again, or it's a hundred year event. Do we pay for it every year until it ever happens again to make sure we don't have the same kind of problem? Or can we respond differently? So those are the type of decisions being made. You know, this uh, water pressure switch at the at the nuclear reactor was an issue. Certainly, we could we can fix that uh, easily. The wind turbines, they iced up. They shut them down. There's ways to to deal with that as well. Certainly, there are wind turbines in northern U.S. that that operate in cold weather, and it's not a problem. It's just it makes them more expensive. Yeah. So do we really want to do that? And the gas lines. The gas that we use in Texas that goes to our gas power plants has some humidity in it, and it froze up and mm -hmm. froze up the gas. You can dehumidify the gas, but you're going to pay so much per cubic foot of gas yeah. more, and do you really want to do that if you don't normally need to do that? So those are the kind of decisions. Not that it can, can't be fixed. It can. It's not as simple as saying, yeah, let's just do that because you know it's, it's expensive, and the gas the utility rates are going to go up but perhaps substantially. So we need to deal with other things. So let's go back to SMRs for a minute. Yeah, I think, for sure. I think small modular reactors are something that we ought to pursue aggressively. Uh, there is an MOU, Memorandum of Understanding, between the Department of Defense and Department of Energy that says we need to work together to try and put a, an SMR on a military installation for energy security for our military installations. The last thing we want if we have a power failure, especially if there's any terrorist activity that helped lead to that power failure is to have our military bases go dark. We need them to help to res help respond to, to the issue, not, not go dark. There is backup power, but there's limited, limited backup power. And uh, most bases have 72 hours or so of backup power. There's no guarantee we're going to get the power back on 72 hours. Texas is a good example. Yeah, for sure. Thinking back about the, the SMR construction, 
And you're saying that as opposed to one large nuclear power plant, that seven of these SMRs, or, or do they really just size them depending on what they need? No, you, you can. I mean, they're anywhere okay. from 10 to 200 megawatts or so. Uh, you know, so I think if you have a, if you want to do it for a base, you could, uh, that uses 16 megawatts of power, put a 21, put a 20 megawatt SMR on the base and you can provide the base with some power and have a little bit left over. You don't have the logistics pipelines. I mean, Navy ships we're, we're launching today uh, don't come back to be refueled for 40 years. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, so we don't have that that problem. A large a large power plant today is 1,400 megawatts or so. You can put seven 200s down there. And if you've got the plant down for maintenance, you're not short 1,400 megawatts. You're short 200 at a time until mm-hmm. you uh, repair. And there's a lot less maintenance for these uh, SMRs. And and like I said, they can be buried. So you put the first ones, I think, my opinion, put the first ones on a military base. You've got security, right? There's guards at the gate. It's not just like building one out in the open. And and you determine how much of a clear zone you need. You, you, you estimate the clear zone, you double it or triple it to make sure there's a lot of bases have a lot of land and make sure it's, it's secure. Uh, there's other things. You know, there are a lot of countries who are building SMRs or trying to and I think it's going to be the technology of the future. A lot of people, fresh water in the world is becoming an issue. Desalinization plants use a lot of power. So you could do an SMR to, to turn salt water into fresh water. I think that it's just a matter of time till these are deployed around the world and our military forces who are deployed uh, are going to run into uh, an SMR someplace. Yeah, and, for and sure. Need, and need to shut it down for security purposes. And it would be nice if it was built in the US to our standards and we knew what was going on. It's also jobs and balance of trade. People buying them from the US is better than people buying them from China or someplace else. I think there's a lot of reasons why we ought to pursue that in the US and have these SMRs meet nuclear certification requirements uh, of the United States versus some lax requirements from some third world country that's figured out a way to build one of these things. Yeah. And why can, why don't we have them now is I know this, I mean, nuclear technology has been around a long time and these are just many nuclear reactors. Why, why don't we have them now? They are. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a priority. They're working on them now. They're, like I said, Idaho national lab is, is going to install one or in the process of, of working it out. Uh, I think it could have been done sooner. It should have been done sooner, but rather than argue about why it had been done, how, how can we do it now and let's get on with it. So I, I just think that's something we need to do. Yeah. So is it the Department of Defense or the Atomic Energy Agency that regulates the the SMRs and the nuclear facilities? The Atomic Energy folks will do it. DOD will get involved. There is a difference between the Atomic Energy Commission uh, role in a large nuclear reactor and and an SMR. And I'm trying to remember exactly how that how that works and where the responsibility is. But they all need to get together and work together to to figure out the best way to do this. Certainly, like I said, we've been operating ships for 70 years. They're basically in a, in a vault. They can't run away like Fukushima or, or uh, Chernobyl or someplace or Three Mile Island. Uh, they're, uh, they're much safer than that. It's something that has significant value that we ought to, ought to do, especially for installations. Now, as I was mentioning, you know, say you had a base that used 16 megawatts of power, maybe put 20, maybe put 40. The reason is that most of the people that work on a military base don't live on the base. True. When I was a commander, uh, installation commander of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, one of the largest bases in the world, 
Uh, most of my people lived off base. And if they couldn't get to work, I had backup power for the command post. But if nobody can show up at the command coast because they can't get from their house to the base because they don't have gas and the gas stations are all shut down because of the power shortage, it, it becomes a major issue. And we found things like we had backup power for the command post, but did not have backup power for the water and sewer systems that serve the command posts. I said, oh, geez, come on, guys. Let's think this thing through a little more carefully. So I ran a, a nuclear preparedness exercise for Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and, and uh, those results are in the Pentagon as well. So they're working on all of those issues. Wow. With all of those issues, and I, I asked this question earlier, but we didn't quite get to it, is we have a world mobility fleet that is going towards electric. And I think that is a wave that is just not going to stop. We're going to continue to see that. We're, we're going to continue to see that. Currently, the clean energy forms, other than nuclear, don't have the same level of energy per unit that you know petroleum still has from that standpoint. Yeah. We've heard a lot of things like, if California wanted to go solar, they have to cover every square inch in a solar panel. And, you know, all these kind of, I had no idea if that's right or not, or if it's just hyperbolic speech from, you know, someone who's against it. But really, with the, where the power grid is, and let's just say we have a plan and we get the power grid up to a point where we're, comf- we're comfortable as a nation from the security of it. But how big does it have to be to support an economy that's going to make that sh- that kind of shift? There are things we can do to make the grid much more uh, resilient, much more reliable, and much more receptive of new technology coming in. Right now, it's pretty much a hardwired grid, and, and it's uh, for one way, you know, it provides power to you, but it needs to be a two-way power grid. There are things that can be done and, and need to be done, but again, we need to take uh, a national approach to it in terms of how we do this. It's going to take a long time. In fact, it'll never get done in that you'll continue to modernize the grid as we go. I think uh, you know you mentioned earlier the uh, the transportation sector and the and the electric vehicles. I think uh, there's a there's there's some advantages certainly to doing that. There are certainly drawbacks. The power grid is not ready for that. We certainly don't have the charging stations we need for people to travel. I think uh, if you have a charging station in your home and you're using it just to go to work and back, that's great. That's, there's no problems with that. But if everybody plans to plug their vehicle in at work, there are not enough charging stations. If everybody's going to go across country, you, you can pull off and you know someplace. You got to find a charging station. I just read an article where somebody, some TripAdvisor type uh, website, took some electric vehicles on a road trip. They had planned, well, I'm going to stop here and stop there and stop at a target and plug my car in. When they got to the target, they had six charging stations. None of them were available. They were all broken and and they need to be repaired. Went to another and they were all busy and and it and it took uh, an hour for the fast charge, up to eight hours for the level two charge. And so you, you just have uh, an issue that continues need to be worked. I mean, there's a lot of research going on in terms of rapid charging, but we're not there yet. And we certainly don't have the charging stations. Even if you had the the money uh, to to build the charging stations, you know, people pull into a gas station today and there's like 1.4 million pumps in the United States, something like that. And it takes five, 10 minutes to fill up your car. What if everybody took an hour to fill up their car? Now, do you have pumps available when you go into a station? You don't. And so even if you had 1.4 million charging stations, if you had as many electric vehicles as we do gas-powered vehicles today, you're still not there. 
Yeah. You're, not, you're not close. Now, we're not close to having that many electric vehicles, but that becomes a significant issue. You can plan your trip around, I'm going to stop for lunch, but everybody can't stop for lunch. Uh, there are not enough restaurants with enough charging stations. Uh, so you just got to plan in the time it takes. And we've got to work this. It's not that it's an it's insurmountable issue. We can't work. We can, but we're a long ways from being there yet, especially with the grid as, as fragile and vulnerable as it is. I mean, we've got a hundred year old grid that's, uh, that's aging and gosh, uh, 2015, I know that's six years ago, but a, a bolt rusted out on a transformer on a pole in Maryland and fell off the pole and shut down power to the White House and the State Department. Wow. I mean, the backup power of the White House came on, but the backup power of the State Department didn't. It failed to switch over for some reason, and they had to go fix that issue. But I mean, if it can happen to the State Department or White House, what happens to your house and mine? Yeah. <laughs> now, I, I, I think that we've got to fix these aging grids. And then from these large power plants, that's another reason to go to smaller ones like the SMRs or some, some other approach, have step down transformers to step the electricity down to trans, transmit it to, to, other, to other places for usage. And these large step down transformers were built many, many years ago. And uh, since we built them all and we're, we're not replacing them or putting new ones in, the manufacturing capability has gone away. We don't have that manufacturing capability in the United States. We certainly know how to do it. That's not the point, but nobody's selling enough of these transformers. So you've got these transformers out there. And when they were built, say there was one in Chicago or two or three or something, and there was a rail line that went to that part of the town and they built a spur line off that rail line to where they wanted to put the transformer. They welded a couple of cars together to put this huge transformer and a couple of rail cars. And they took it on that spur line, took it to a spot, offloaded it and put it in place. Then back the cars back out, took up the rail line, took up the, the spur line and you can't get there anymore. And now houses and, and communities, businesses have built up around that transformer. And if it fails, you, even if you had a spare, you can't replace it. I mean, I don't know how you get it there. Yeah. One of the studies that I shared for the National Academy of Sciences, we pointed all that out and we said, you know, we need a plan for each of these major transformers in terms of if it were to fail, how do we replace it? Now, to, to date, uh, most of them, they'll, they'll have a problem and they'll need maintenance and we can repair them. But what if there were a terrorist attack that blew them up? You can't repair it. Now, what do you do? I mean, there is a plan in Department of Energy to, to route around one or up to two transformers. But if three or, three or more go out at one time, there could be a major section of the country that's without power for weeks or months. Yeah. Didn't, didn't we have, uh, in the last 10 years or so, someone came fairly close in the Bay Area to actually taking out one of their big step-downs, if I recall, yeah, there was Silicon Valley. There was an attack on a substation that, that took out 17 transformers or something like that. And the concern was, and it was like Deer Rough 30 out sixes or something that shot out the oil reserves so that that cooled these transformers so that they, they shut themselves down or they burned up, whatever they did. The concern was, is this a test of some larger attack coordinated across the country at several sites at once. It turned out that we haven't seen that yet. doesn't mean it, it wasn't. But there are a number of, uh, of attacks around the country uh, every year that are concerned. In fact, direct physical attacks. The DOE took a look at a three-year period and from 2011 to 2014. Now, that's, that's a while ago. But even then, and I think it's worse today, 
Uh, electric utilities reported 362 targeted attacks that ca- caused outages and other power disruptions. That was 362 in a three-year period. And it's over 100 a year. Uh, and cyber attacks are another major problem. In fact, DOE... Yeah, that was my next, next question for you. DOE reported, components reported 1,131 cyber attacks over a 48-month period, not too far back. And 159 of those intrusions were successful. And 53 of, them, of the successful were root compromises, meaning that the penetrators gained administrative privileges to DOE's computer systems. Whoa. So that ought to concern somebody. Yeah. And it, and it does. And the people know that and they're trying to work on it, but I'm not sure that they're working on it fast enough with enough priority. And, and I, I know, I know there's a bill that Congress has been debating on for some time for infrastructure, but I'm not sure that there's a, I haven't seen it, but I don't have a need to, maybe others do, yeah. that there is a, a, a systematic approach to exactly how we would use that money and how we would address these issues. If it's to, to take old lines and these transformers that fell off the pole and replace the bolts, uh, okay, but that's not getting there, right? How do we provide a new system, new technology, proven innovative energy sources that are capable of producing much more secure power? And I think about recent, most recently, the example that I think of is more related to the colonial pipeline attack. You know, they they had a cyber attack and ended yes, up yes, paying sure. off their ransomware and getting it turned back on because it was more valuable to root five million in Bitcoin to you know Eastern Europe than it was to yeah. try to figure out how to get power back to that system on its own. And when I look at a nation that's going to move to an even more an even higher level of dependency on the electric power grid, then I find ourselves probably more vulnerable and and at least more susceptible to outside cyber attack on that system or systems. I I sit on a uh, military advisory board for the CNA Corporation, which is a federally funded nonprofit research and development center. We uh, study pressing issues of the day to assess their impact on national security. Uh, when I say we, the military advisory board consists of retired three and four-star generals and admirals from the Army, Army Navy, Air Force, and Marine Corps uh, that look at these issues and and draw upon our military expertise and experiences we've had providing power to forward operating bases or our bases in the United States and dealings with communities. It's something that in the recent report that we published on electricity, we we said, look, we fully recognize that there's significant investment uh, in the current model of, a, of electricity production and distribution in, in, the, in the country. But the current grid is just too too vulnerable and too costly to maintain. We've got to do something differently. And, and in fact, according to a March 2015 Associated Press, again, this is six years ago, but Associated Press uh, put out a report where they studied the grid and they said, US, quote, U.S. grid outages cost the economy somewhere between 80 and $180 billion a year. That's the repair the outages. That's wow. what the outages cost. So we can't, af- can't afford to upgrade it. We can't afford not to upgrade it. Right? Yeah, I would agree. Well, General, I, I want to, first of all, thank you for so much time. I know we're, we're butting up on the hour here and, and you've got to move on to more pressing matters throughout, throughout Austin here. But uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your knowledge and history with us on the podcast. But more than that, I would like to ask you, what is one piece of advice you would give to the next generation that is going to be in charge of this country, that's going to be in charge of our security and the welfare of our children? What advice would you give to us seeing everything that you've seen in your life and your career? 
You know, I, I think it's important that we try and see things from different perspectives. We all look at issues uh, from my seat. I see this and that. But what about somebody else? How does it, what does it mean to them? I mean, look at, look at the immigration issue from both sides. Look at, we certainly have to do something with it. We've got to have yeah. to protect our borders. Look at all of the, the issues. I used to think and hope we can get back there to where we could get both parties dealing together to come up with the right issue. I, I have a hard time. I don't care what the issue is, that all Republicans believe one way, all Democrats believe another way. I, I just don't think that's true. If they really voted their heart, some would see it a different way. I mean, there, there's, there's got to be ways we can, we can stop all the partisan uh, arguing and, and see things from other people's perspectives and come up with something that's not everything I wanted, but it's better than where we're at and we need to move in that direction. And we've got to understand that we all need to work together to address this power grid issue. This is a major problem in this country and we have the technology and the ability to do it. We've just got to get on with it. So the examples that exist, like, like I said, Pecan Street, the university on its own grid or things. In fact, Princeton has its own grid. So when, oh, really? huh. yeah, so when Superstorm Sandy hit up in New York and New Jersey, uh, all the first responders went up there and, and they would work all day and they couldn't plug in their cell phones because no power. Right. They would collect all the cell phones up and drive up to Princeton and charge them up overnight and bring them all back and work the next day. The next night, take them all back to Princeton because Princeton oh, wow. didn't lose power. Everybody else did. So there are ways we can do this. We need to take an enclave, our most critical infrastructure, so that we don't have uh, these kind of problems that affects everyone. Yeah, for sure. Well, Ken, thank you so much again. I, I, I really enjoy the time that we get to spend together, the stories that, that I, I get to share with you, or more importantly, that you get to share with me. I feel like I never come away from an interaction with you where I haven't learned something new invaluable. So thank you so much. You're kind. <laughs> I appreciate it. I always enjoy talking to you. Take care. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Uncorrelated Minds podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. For more information on the topics covered in this podcast, please visit the show notes page for links to further information at www.sinaceracapital.com. Sinisera Capital is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Sinisera and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. The information provided is for educational and informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or offer to sell a security. It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status, or investment horizon. You should consult your attorney or tax advisor. All information has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy is not guaranteed. There is no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy, reliability, completeness of, nor liability for decisions based on such information, and it should not be relied upon as such.